You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, uh, before we get going, I want to give you a quick word from our sponsor, Credible. Credible.com is an online marketplace for student loan refinancing. You could save thousands on your student loan. It only takes about two minutes to find out if you're overpaying. They uh, give you rates from multiple lenders. They're actual rates, not a range, and it does not affect your credit score at all. The average user who refinances through Credible.com saves almost $19,000 over the life of their loan. So I want you to go to Credible.com slash longform. As a listener to the show, for a limited time, you can get a $200 welcome bonus when refinancing through Credible. Again, that's Credible.com slash longform. Thank you, Credible. Also bringing you the show today is Mubi. That's M-U-B-I, Mubi. Mubi is a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe. Each day they open up a new film for you. It's a hand-picked gem and you have a month to watch it, which means you have about 30 movies to watch at a time, which for me is way more manageable than most of these streaming services. It's timeless classics. It's thought-provoking documentaries. It's masterpieces, and they're picked by experts. If you want to delve deeper, they've got exclusive interviews and all kinds kinds of stuff. I encourage you to check it out. Get outside the algorithm. Try Mubi for free for 30 days at mubi.com slash longform. Mubi.com slash longform. You get a free month and you'll be supporting this show. Here's that show. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I am here with Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky, respectively of the Atavist and Longform. Hey, you guys. Howdy. Hey, hey. Hey, Evan, I just want to tell you that a lot of people uh, seem to like that uh, most recent Atavist story, Promethea Unbound. Oh, yeah. Getting a lot of getting a lot of buzz. People should go check it out if they have many, it. Many people are talking about it. It's one of our best. Um, but on the show this week, I talked to Jason Leopold. This is kind of an unusual episode. Um, I'm not sure if Jason self-identifies or was identified by a government agency as a FOIA terrorist. I'm pretty sure he doesn't self-identify as a FOIA terrorist. I know. He's like, he, he, embra- he em- like on his card. He embraces the uh, good-natured antagonism between uh, himself and the agencies which are tasked with um, uncovering uh, thousands and thousands of documents that he requests about everything. Um, from just about every agency that you can FOIA. Um, I didn't know anything about FOIA, like how to do it, like what you could FOIA. Um, and he's built basically an entire 
niche in journalism around this stuff and um, for people who are interested in uh, doing some foying at their own uh, their own uh, office uh, this is a great primer he's currently at BuzzFeed right? he is currently at BuzzFeed he was previously at Vice News he's been a bunch of different places um, and he's had some pretty dramatic ups and downs in his careers which were pretty interesting to talk about as well yeah this episode's great it's like a uh, it's a real blend between the like career talk and also just like very hands-on how to do something in journalism i like that nuts and bolts uh if you don't know the nuts and bolts of sending out an email newsletter don't waste time to trying to figure them out just sign up for mailchimp they make it easy thank you mailchimp and now here's aaron with jason leopold Welcome, Jason Leopold. Thank you. I want to talk to you about how you got to what you're doing now. The thing you're primarily known for uh, today is FOIA-based journalism. You publish at a pretty rapid clip. How many articles do you think you've published this year? This year? Actually, I uh, looked at my author page on okay. BuzzFeed, and it's been a little over 40. Yeah. Let's talk about how you first got started with the FOIA stuff. Sure. So what was your first FOIA request? You know, my first FOIA request was during the Bush years, and it was largely related to looking for documents related to the torture program or on Guantanamo, uh, legal opinions. But during that time, I really was not savvy with FOIA. I, I depended largely on sources, on anonymous sources, on sources that were you know, perhaps in the know. So FOIA to me at that time just seemed like a tedious task and very difficult to get documents. So I did file FOIA requests, but not as frequent as I do now. So like, what are the origins of FOIA? Like, Where did FOIA start? Yeah, so FOIA is a 50-year-old law. Uh, it's been around for half a century, just celebrated its birthday. Interestingly, one of the proponents of FOIA who helped push it forward was former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld when he was a senator. But yeah. it essentially came when the press and, and the public wanted uh, to have some transparency. And this is kind of in the period after Eisenhower warned of the growing military-industrial complex. Exactly. And the idea that industry and the military would kind of become one all-powerful force. Exactly. And there were very few people that were pushing for it, uh, particularly in Congress. I mean, notably, Congress, when they created the Freedom of Information Act, when they put this legislation together, they exempted themselves from FOIA. So they said, <laughs> hey, you know, it's okay if the public or journalists want to FOIA the federal government, but they exempted themselves. So you, you cannot FOIA Congress. You could sort of work around that and right. you know, FOIA the agencies and ask for congressional records, but um, uh, they more or less just left themselves out as well as the White House. So to understand it a little bit better, so if someone from Congress talked to someone in the FBI, right. that interaction is FOIA-able in the FBI's recollection. It is. Yeah. And, and what's happening right now is that some of these congressional committees that interact with uh, executive branch agencies are now writing to them saying, these records, these letters, for example, anything that we're discussing with you, federal agency, would be exempt from FOIA. So Congress can say that uh, you know this is a congressional record not subject to FOIA. 
And so you once again see the sort of uh, wall of secrecy going up. So the fact that everyone knows that this exists means that as the CIA, the FBI act, they know that their actions will later be subject to potential FOIA requests. They do. In fact, it's uh, it's funny. So when I email the CIA, for example, for comment, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll email their public relations yeah. office. And I get a response from the public relations office. And at the bottom, it says sort of a disclaimer that says, FYI, this email could be subject to FOIA. So they're, they're making you, the person who's you know, writing in to them, aware that your own communications could be subject to FOIA. Yeah, it's kind of like that do not print warning that just right. sort of just exactly. gets tacked on to, yeah. you know, uh, someone said that like 8% of the total texts in world history of emails is do not please <laughs> yeah. consider the environment of printing this right. warnings. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it certainly has come uh, into its own or, you know, the FOIA has been popularized, if you will, arguably perhaps by Hillary Clinton's emails. The fact that those were released through FOIA, my FOIA, as a matter of fact, and we're seeing more and more uh, members of the public, not journalists, but just people out there using this tool. There's been intense secrecy surrounding government operations for decades, but it's really changing quite a bit. And you can see that through the statistics that the government agencies release where they have three quarters of a million FOIA requests that came in last year. Are you on the near the top of that leaderboard of the, all of those FOIA requests? I don't have uh, yeah. you know, hundreds of thousands, <laughs> but I definitely have thousands of thousands, FOIA requests yeah. outstanding. And you know, I, when you file numerous requests to the FBI, they put you on their vexatious requesters list. I mean, I, I've landed on that <laughs> list. Uh, you know, the NSA has accused me in court filings of weaponizing FOIA, yeah. uh, of trying to deluge that agency. FBI has uh, has referred to me as a FOIA terrorist simply because I am using this tool and I'm forcing these government agencies to release these records. And uh, largely the records that I'm asking for are very newsworthy, about very newsworthy programs, policies, tactics, and you know, it's important. It's important to inform the public. And I really do believe that as well as trying to land a damn good story. <laughs> so I spent last night reviewing like the last couple years of your FOIA history yeah. and it's uh, diverse and has many threads and prongs. And it struck me that generally when journalists are doing work for a story, they know what story they're writing. Mm-hmm. A lot of these beginnings of these requests, it seems like you're kind of poking and seeing what comes out and just about anything could come back. Nothing could come back. Right. Um, something totally unexpected could come back that would be a very different story. Where do you get an idea for a FOIA request? And is it for a specific story yeah. or a lot broader project? You know, when I was working on the CIA's torture program, I knew that one, obviously, this is a secret program. Yeah. And there was a universe of records that existed, not just at the CIA, at the State Department, at the Department of Justice and the FBI, that would likely shed light on you know how this program was executed, how it was carried out, and a program uh, that was largely designed by lawyers. It largely like, designed by lawyers, which but then, generally leaves a paper trace. Oh, lawyers yeah. are designing. There, there was systems. no doubt in my mind that there was obviously a paper trail, and and you know I wanted to find out, for example, 
what were they discussing behind the scenes? I, I often try to put myself into a government agency when they are crafting these ideas. What would they be discussing? How would they be discussing it? Would it be verbally or would it be through a chain of emails and memos? And when I craft my request, I cover everything. You know, I, I want your notes. I want your emails. I want your chat logs. You know, I think about a topic. And then from there, I look at the, you know, government agency's organizational chart. I know this is going to sound boring and tedious, but, you know, I try to understand how an agency is set up, uh, how an office within an agency is set up. For example, the CIA, you know, has the clandestine, National Clandestine Service, right? That's the service that conducts all the covert activities. So surely that's the office that would have, you know, been involved with it. And then I'm thinking, well, lots of journalists have probably asked the CIA Public Relations Office for comment about this program. And I know how the CIA's Public Relations Office works. They'll sometimes write to back to a journalist and say, off the record, on background. So I want all of their communications with journalists as well. So I really try to cover a universe of records and knowing that they will exist and then try to put together a story from that. So I have a sense of what I want to write about, but at times it will only come through when I get the records. And oftentimes I'll see a item in a news story, and I'll give you an example, and that will spark a FOIA request and will lead to a story. A couple of months ago, actually, I think it was about three months ago in August, the Daily Beast published a story about Sebastian Gorka, the former national security advisor, I believe that was his title. But Sebastian Gorka was pushed out of the White House. Yeah. Buried in this story was a, a sentence that said, Sebastian Gorka was due to give a talk at United States Special Operations Command. So uh, special ops forces he was going to speak to. But the talk was abruptly canceled due to you know, whatever the circumstances were. I wanted to know what he was going to speak about. So I filed a FOIA request based on this one sentence I saw in the Daily Beast to U.S. Special Operations Command. I said, I want all your emails between Special Operations Command and Sebastian Gorka, any drafts of speeches that he may have submitted. And sure enough, two weeks later, which, by the way, is an anomaly because it often takes years to get records back. But about two weeks later, they sent me a chain of emails. And they also disclosed to me that Sebastian Gorka did speak to special ops forces. He gave a classified talk where he railed against Islam. So I saw an item in a news story that was ripe for a FOIA request. I filed it got records back, and was able to push that story forward about what Sebastian Gorka was doing and why you know, someone who is as controversial as he is is still being invited into this sort of uh, world in which he's giving these speeches. A lot of your FOIA work, um, you touched on this already, involves not just what happened, but what was planned, what was discussed, what were the early drafts? What got cut from those drafts? 
What's the value of looking at the government through that lens, through that planning, through that drafting lens? It's incredibly valuable for the public to know how the government, government officials are thinking, what they're thinking, what the reason is that they're changing policy, uh, how the sausage is made, so to speak. It really provides, I believe, a look into what takes place behind the scenes when you know policy is implemented. And I find it actually as a way to educate the public about that. You don't often get the opportunity to be a fly on the wall in a highly classified meeting, perhaps. And I think that it somewhat feels empowering to know that you can, in a way, be there through these documents, more or less. And I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. I had this um, idea after the Obama administration talked about going after the Islamic State, this new operation. And the actual name escapes me, but they had a name for the operation to go after the Islamic State. And I was wondering, well, how do they come up with that name? Were they just sitting around a table and saying, hey, all right, so we're going after the Islamic State now, and um, we need a name for this operation. I th I've thought about this topic myself. Yeah. Sometimes an operation's got like a almost randomized name. Right. And sometimes it's like Operation Thunderfoot. And yes, it's like, was there exactly. a brainstorming session right. where someone said like, I don't know, Thunderfoot, it's a little bit much. Yeah. Yeah, you, you you may have to just look up what you know what what right, this look, operation was. How, what, um, what could I Google that would uh, discuss? Just uh, Operation Islamic State, and then type in my name, maybe, operation and then FOIA. Islamic State. Jason it's um, Leopold FOIA. Let's see. Oh, inherent resolve. Is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. So, um, and I was truly wondering. I mean, it was literally just I'm sitting at my desk. And the name comes out, Operation Inherent Resolve. And I was thinking, how did they come up with this name? And I started to imagine this scene, you know, playing out. Uh, hey, hey, Joe, we need a, we, we, we need a name for this new operation. Uh, uh, you got one? All right, everyone throw your best names into a hat. I filed a FOIA request on it saying, I want all your records revolving around the discussion. All the alternate names for yeah, this one. For, for this amazing set of records came back that literally provide the behind the scenes discussions about how they came up with this name, the reason they came up with it, what it means, what the names were prior to that. So not only was I able to put together a great story that shed light on how names of um, military operations are given, but I think it really provided the public with insight into you know how these military minds work and perhaps even the propaganda value of that. And that's what those records showed. There there was quite a bit of propaganda value, you know, for the government to use that name and it explains it in these records. Hey, I'm going to pause things here briefly to give you a word from our sponsor, Skillshare. 
Whether you're looking to get a leg up at work or perhaps uh, start a project that you don't quite have the skills to do yourself yet, Skillshare has over 3 million members and more than 17,000 classes. It's the Netflix for online learning. You can take graphic design, DSLR photography, social media marketing, digital illustration, and much more, all taught by industry experts and experienced professionals. It's perfect if you are trying to get your career going or get a side hustle going. I looked over the classes right off the bat. I was pretty interested in taking typography, logo design, Adobe Illustrator. And the best part is, if you're listening to the show, you can get a one-month free trial with unlimited access to those 17,000 classes if you go to www.skillshare.com slash longform. Again, skillshare.com slash longform gets you a free month of unlimited access. Thank you, Skillshare. Here I am back with Jason Leopold. You're at um, you're at BuzzFeed now, yes. but you've done this kind of work for a string of publications. Uh, you were at Vice News previously, lots of places. How different is what you're doing based on who you're writing it for? And I'm also curious, like, who is the audience for this stuff? Like, particularly like BuzzFeed, right? Like, right. who's reading about? the inner workings of counterterrorism sure. operations in that BuzzFeed audience? Is it primarily other reporters mm -hmm. and other people who have a deep interest in public policy? I think that's a good question. You know, I work for BuzzFeed News and I'm on their investigations team. Yeah. And it's a an amazing, amazing investigations team and group of journalists and editors that I work with. And so to answer your first question, it's a huge difference working where I am now compared to where I worked previously, largely because I have the opportunity to collaborate with other journalists who provide their insight into you know, these stories, who the audience is, how to frame the stories, as well as getting the best editing. And that that's important not just for journalism in general, but it's also important for the stories that are, you know, perhaps based on on documents. So it's very valuable to have that kind of support. But I try to make these stories appealing to a general audience, not just uh, people who may be interested in counterterrorism, yeah. but not just wonks. Yeah, not just wonks. People who may be interested in secrecy, uh, people who may be interested in just how government works. I mean, I had a story, and this was a perfect BuzzFeed story, but honestly, I think this would have been a great story for any publication. You know, one thing that I often ask for are inspector general reports from all government agencies. And inspector general reports are essentially the internal watchdogs at government agencies who are, you know, investigating waste, fraud, and abuse and other uh, other matters that are taking place inside this agency. So the CIA has an internal watchdog and they investigate the same. And I asked for all their inspector general reports covering a certain time frame. They sent me back one, which was hilarious. It was about a bunch of contractors who were at the CIA who hacked the vending machine and over the course of six months stole $3,000 worth of food. And I actually ended up tweeting this 
you know, the first page of this out. And, you know, after tweeting it, you know, one of my colleagues who I work with recognized the, you know, the value, like, hey, let's put a story together on this. This is this is a perfect story for our audience. And and we did. And it was a great story. I mean, there was even a referral to the Justice Department to prosecute these contractors. Mind you that the people who were engaged in torture were not prosecuted, but they really wanted to go after these hackers. And, you know, they set up these elaborate surveillance cameras to catch them. And so this narrative is contained in these documents. And so we put a story together, published it on BuzzFeed, and the audience was, you know, our, our general audience. But this was a story that was picked up everywhere. Even Parade Magazine that you, you know, the magazine in your Sunday paper picked it up. So the point being that y- you never know what you're going to get in some of the records. And certainly there are some documents that just may appeal to a niche audience, right? Uh, it doesn't diminish from, you know, the value. It's important to have that out there. And I, you know, the the transparency aspects to it are are important as well. But um, oftentimes when we get these records, when I get these records, you're trying to put together a narrative and a story that will appeal to everyone. So um, that's certainly what I do. I try to engage the reader. Sometimes I try to make it fun and also hard hitting. And, you know, I want to make a point of also noting that when I get these records, I, I just don't sit there and write about the records. I take the records and then I'll try to find out what was redacted. I'll reach out to the people, you know, who were reluctant to speak with me previously because the matter may have been classified. I show them the documents and suddenly they are willing to speak because there's no fear that what they say, you know, will be classified or get them in trouble. And that just opens up the door to a larger story. You didn't start off doing this kind of FOIA reporting. No. Uh, You started totally. So what made you want to get into journalism in the first place? Journalism was actually always a fallback career. You know, my dad was like, Jason, you need to have something in case this other career doesn't work out. And that other career was the music business. I'm a uh, huge fan of music. I used to work in the record business many, many years ago when there was a record business and people were buying records. I was going to say, you really hit the like trifecta of uh, failing industries, music oh, man, business yeah. and journalism. Yeah, no, I'm <laughs> look, I'm uh I, I hope this journalism thing keeps going because uh, uh, I'm enjoying it. But uh, I worked in the music business, and the music business thing didn't work out. So I landed a gig in Westchester in White Plains writing obituaries. That was my first job. And it was the best place to start, the best first job to have as a journalist, particularly when you're moving into investigative journalism or just in general trying to get people to talk to you. Because here I was in this job trying to get people who are at their most vulnerable point speak. They just lost a loved one. And how do you do that? And I had to be their brother, their husband, their wife, you know, son, and try to pull out information from them when they were at their lowest point, when they were at their most vulnerable, which I believe served me well later on for getting people to speak with me. And, you know, from there, I sort of traveled through many different jobs in, in the journalism world and to the point where I am now. You, you wrote a book about your uh, 
rise and fall and rise again in uh, yeah. in the news it actually, industry. It was actually just a rise and fall, just, and, I, and, and sort of a rise well, again. Now, now, yeah. now you now you yeah. you can write a sequel now. Yeah, I, I think there's probably one too. Yeah, so you know, I think anyone who's like really interested in the story just get the book. It's a gripping read, and especially if you're like a journalist yourself. Yeah. But um, just as the book was coming out, and the book chronicles uh, you. Uh, using cocaine, stopping yeah. using cocaine, uh, getting fired from the LA Times. You write the book, and just as the book's coming out, you publish a story about uh, yeah. Karl Rove. The timing could not have been worse. Here I am, I just wrote a book, and it was a memoir, and it was yeah. this memoir of my personal and professional life and how the two sort of clashed. Yeah, The secrets that I was trying to reveal about other people and the secrets I was keeping about myself, what I was running from and what I was trying to expose. And uh, in addition to that, I write about how I was a liar, a thief, drug addict, you know, I didn't hold back any. And uh, the book comes out as well uh, at the same time as a story I wrote about Karl Rove. Karl Rove being Bush's former top advisor, Turd Blossom, which was his nickname, and this was right around the time that the Bush administration, various officials in the Bush administration, were being investigated for over the leak of covert CIA operative Valerie Plame. I reported that Karl Rove was indicted. He was about to get indicted. No, no, I reported that he was indicted. I I went full on, Yeah, and I didn't have any caveats, you know, and I reported that Carl Rove was secretly indicted last night. Uh, special prosecutor Patrick Fitzgerald presented his attorney with an indictment, and he has, uh, and this has become somewhat notorious. I reported specifically that he had 24 business hours to get his affairs in order. And, you know, when I reported that story, I was working for a nonprofit news outfit. I, I live in LA, and uh, it was difficult to sort of be a reporter at this time covering national issues if, if you weren't in New York or DC. And I reported this story on a Saturday. Yeah. And, you know, shared it with my editor at the time who spoke to my sources as well. We didn't put any caveats in. And I sat back and waited and I was like, ah, I just scooped the world. Uh, I wonder how long it'll be before the LA Times and the New York Times and the Washington Post follow up on this. And a day went by, and then two days, and then three days. And obviously we know at this point, Karl Rove wasn't indicted. It right. was a story that was just wrong. And uh, it, it cost me my credibility. I mean, destroyed my credibility. And from there, I needed to rebuild it. I needed yeah. to rebuild my credibility. But it was, I mean, when I say it cost me my credibility, oh, it's, I'm sure. It's, I... it, that's not an understatement. I mean, I was pretty much trying to be drummed out of pushed out of journalism so i wonder if we can unpack this a little bit because it's something that i interview people in the show and yeah. i'm always I, i'm surprised this does not happen more often yeah which is people are dealing with sources who have their own agendas and mm-hmm. and i and i'm curious if in in your reconstruction yeah. of these events what you think happened yeah but uh certainly like um Push aside, pushing aside the Bush White House, right? Pulling in the Trump White House, yeah. You can see anonymous sources 
pushing journalists mm-hmm. left and right. Oh, Ivanka is against all of this stuff. Right. Who's the source on that story? Yeah. Is it Jared Kushner? There's a tremendous capacity, especially when you're relying on sources in real time for them to uh, right. set you up, basically. Yeah. yeah. And I'm just, I'm surprised that this whole system is based on the idea of a certain number of sources when that doesn't really address the idea of a source malicious. Like it sort of assumes that sources have like a honesty setting on how, how do you feel like this event happened? And and also like, how did it change how you approach things in the future beyond needing your credibility to have a future? It's a, it's a great question. And it, and it actually, um, you know, is, is obviously what led me to the, much of the work I do now, what happened? I mean, first, I was given information by sources that I depended upon, that I trusted, that provided me with information in the past that proved to be correct, and and you know maybe there was a detail off here and there. What happened here is that I, when I look back on it, um, it's funny because it wasn't as if I was just fell into journalism. At that point, I'd been practicing it for, you know, about 10 years. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't have had a source like this unless you were right. pretty pretty yeah. deep in. Yeah. yeah. There aren't sources you can get in your uh, first six months of journalism right. who are going to tell you in yeah. advance that Karl Rove has yeah. been indicted. And this wasn't just, hey, Karl Rove is indicted. This was detailed. This was, here's what happened. Here's how it happened. Here's the night it happened. Here's the time it happened. And, you know, it's provided all yeah. of this information. And it never occurred to me. This is the part that I look back on that I have such deep regrets about. It never occurred to me that the source could be wrong. Right. Never occurred to me that could the source be using me? Could there be a possibility that maybe the source wanted me to publish this for another agenda? It didn't occur to me. It occurred to me that the source likes me. Right. Um, I'm a cool guy. You know, <laughs> I'm getting information. It didn't occur to me. I mean, there's also. Let's say it all really happened. Say yeah. the source was acting in good faith. There's always that slim capacity for, oh, we changed our mind. Right. We're not going to let him. Also, maybe we changed our mind because of this news report. Like, there's the capacity to sure. change the narrative in relation to basically anonymous sources leaking what the information yeah. is. Look, this wasn't a story about yeah. you know some military operation in Iraq. This was high-stakes journalism. I knew it was high-profile, but I didn't think about it that way. I just reported that one of the most powerful people in politics had been indicted without thinking of the fact that it's, what if that's not true? So the repercussions, the blowback from that was immediate, and it certainly didn't help that I had a book that came out that said, hey, look at me and look at all of these, you know, terrible things I did. Right. And and this sort of fed into that. But I did rely on anonymous sources largely at that point. And, uh, you know, when you're dealing with, you talk about the Trump administration, you know, who's going to go on the record to speak about what's happening, whether it's has to do with, you know, the investigation or inside the White House. So there comes a point where you, you know, you have to make that decision like, what is the agenda here? Why are they giving this information? And what are they trying to push forward? 
in this case, for me, with Karl Rove, I looked back on it and I felt that um, I think I was used. I think I was, I, I, I think I was used in the sense that get this out, perhaps it will put pressure on Karl Rove and uh, maybe they'd come up with some agreement. Um, did you ever speak to the source again? I did. And uh, the source you know, insisted that this is the information we, we were given. But I didn't ask the right questions. That's the thing. I didn't ask the right questions. And I also didn't have the greatest editor at the time that could guide me. And I yep. think that, you know, going forward and, and being privileged to work with other you know, journalists and editors, I see what the value is in having an editor, somebody there that says, stop, stop. And these are the questions you need to ask. And that just wasn't the case because we were so emotionally perhaps invested in this. This was a, we felt, you know, that there was an injustice here and we felt righteous in trying to expose that injustice. But the right questions weren't asked. I didn't ask the source, who did you get this from? When did you get this from? You know, is it possible that this person could have been wrong? And so this was 11 years ago that this, more than 11 years ago that I reported this. And it it simply only occurred to me when I got this information that I got a scoop, that it was a scoop. I was going to scoop, you know, the mainstream media, and then everyone would look at me and say, wow, Jason, you're incredible. Come join us at this organization. It was really ego-driven as well. I'm curious. I think that the whole idea of a scoop can be a bit opaque to people who aren't journalists, you know. Uh, whether the Washington Post or the New York Times publishes something about the Trump administration is really a footnote in my experience sure. of it. But it can be very central to uh, the motivations and the decision making in newsrooms. Why is it important to get a scoop and why is speed important? And has your have your views changed all that over? Oh, time? yeah, totally. I mean, my views have completely changed on on speed. I mean. And I used to work for a wire service, so it was all about speed. It was all I used to work for Dow Jones Newswires, and you know we needed to beat Bloomberg. You know we wanted to be moving the market before anyone else did. Largely, it's just about being able to pat yourself on the back. Yeah. Right. Does the public care about that you have a scoop? Yeah, probably not. But it is valuable to land that sometimes in order to attract additional sources, new people to come forward. Perhaps they will step up and speak with you. It is a way to showcase your own journalism and you get to be out in front, frankly, and say, you know, you you got something first, right? It's yep. it's it's just like a race. You know, do you do you want to come in second or do you want to come in first? There's Most, been a there's been a weird trend I've noticed where actually now a lot of the times that people are first are the people who have the kind of incomplete story that doesn't right. really stick. Like I've noticed that when New York Times is going to publish something in one to two days, often there's some like pylon daily beasts, right. like with like a third of the stuff. Yeah. Kind of like, hey, we're, this is coming. Like, right. Us right. too. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, it, it's not even like the first is yeah. like an inherent badge right. of authority anymore. Yeah. I, I mean, look, I am fiercely competitive as a journalist. I mean, that's just sort of in my DNA, yeah. fiercely competitive. And, you know, am I telling the general public, hey, I got a scoop and 
Do they care about it? Probably not. But I would like to, you know, let people know that, look, you know, I work really hard to get this information. It's new information and nobody else has it. And, you know, pay attention to it. It's a way to get people to also pay attention to what you're reporting, particularly in, the, in this, you know, this news climate and, and where you have so many different news outlets that in a way you're trying to get attention from people. You're trying to say, hey, look over here, look at this shiny object, it's new, and this is what you want to look at. So, you know, I think there's many different reasons. I am not driven by that anymore. Um, and, you know, I mentioned ego, and it really was an ego previously, and, you know, it really was about my ego a lot of the times. Um, I got it first, and it made me, you know, feel better about myself. I mean, you mentioned my book. I've written about it in my book, my own insecurities, vulnerabilities, addictions. You know, landing a scoop was highly addictive. You know, it felt good. I write about it in the way that it felt just like, you know, having a first, my first line of cocaine. That's what I compared it to because it was an incredible adrenaline rush. But I feel that that episode that happened with Carl Rove has made me a far far better journalist. I'm in a unique position to understand what not to do. I'm in, a, in the unique position where I don't make those mistakes. I made the worst mistake that cost me my credibility and I could have done two things. I could have walked away and said, I'm done with this, nobody wants me anymore. Or I could have, which I did, say, I'm going to learn how to do this differently and be better. And that ultimately is what sort of paved the way to this FOIA work because nobody trusted me anymore. I got the biggest story wrong. Nobody trusted me. I love being a journalist. How do I continue to do this work? How can I continue to inform the public? How can I get people to trust me again? And it happened one day when somebody handed me a bunch of documents from their FOIA request. And these documents, you know, showed how the Air Force was training nuclear missile officers, you know, the people who would launch nuclear weapons, training them about the ethics and morals of launching nuclear weapons. And these documents were a PowerPoint presentation. And this PowerPoint presentation depicted Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ on a horse holding a nuke and a former Nazi SS soldier. These were the, the sort of ethical, you know, examples and moral examples that the government was using to tell their nuclear missile officers, it's okay to launch nuclear weapons. Don't right. feel badly about it. And so this has always been a topic that's fascinated people too. Like there's that Ron Rosenbaum piece mm. from the seventies about, I believe there's a safe in nuclear submarines that right. has instructions about what you're supposed to do if the U S doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. This idea of like, what does a Christian do um, when you can like destroy the enemy, but your right. like your world is already yeah. destroyed? Yeah, very weird. It's uh, weird. Not it's... a question that the writers of the Bible considered. Right, <laughs> but it's also fascinating that the government is trying to figure out ways. You know, the military yeah. is trying to figure out ways to get people to carry out their mission. Yeah, and so I looked at this, and it had these colorful pictures, and I, I immediately thought, like, this is going to be a great story. You know, and I think this was my first story where I actually used 
documents where the documents were the primary source material. I embedded the documents. And once we published that story, I saw the response and it was, I mean, it went viral because then people were able to look at those documents and the document became the source me. of the credibility. Yeah. You could say this guy's bullshit, but it, it's right. like, what you is this document forged? The, he like the changed, changed his tactics and right. started uh, forging documents here. Right. Yeah. So that's really interesting. What What's the difference between a, a, like reporting from a document and reporting from sources? I think that it, it hits on what you said. You know, there's always the possibility that a source could be wrong. Yeah. And they're particularly, they're unnamed. And that all falls on you, right? So, you know, it takes a lot of work to vet sources, to vet yep. their information, and to follow it up. A document, you're literally getting the government's internal document. Look, you can completely frame a document in the wrong way. Sure. You can present it in a way that is the opposite of how it was intended. Uh, you can cherry pick from documents and try to manipulate your reader. But the document is it speaks for itself and the public is sort of what you're asking with us you know with an anonymous source is you're asking the public to trust you more or less to trust the reporter look yep. i have integrity i've done good work trust me this person who's speaking about this is telling the truth and you know and i think that the public is just really particularly over the years is, is just distrustful of reporters of journalism of sources that everybody has an agenda so I feel far more comfortable when I have documents versus having an anonymous source because what if the source is wrong? I always think back to that Carl Rove episode. and Unintentionally but, or intentionally wrong. Right. But the difference is this, is that I have the greatest editors now. I have a group of colleagues who are truly amazing that, you know, will help vet everything and and we take the time to unpack what we're being told. I also will say that like, you know, it's very easy to get information from sources over the phone, you know, this is the way in which reporting is now. You know, you get report information from sources over the phone or through an email or I go out and meet my sources. I literally will go to wherever they are so I can sit with them, so I can look at them, so I can you know, we yep. can speak to each other. Do you feel like you pick up on things in yes. that way? Like it, tone? Way, yeah. way better. Yeah. That Carl Rove story was based on conversations I had over the phone. Interesting. And that is, I feel, very, very dangerous. Very dangerous to, if you do not get out of the office and actually meet people, yeah. uh, particularly in, in, when you're dealing with high-profile topics and sensitive matters, it's dangerous. It would strike me that um, even when you have the documents, like a, a major difference between working from documents than with sources is you can't ans ask follow-up questions. You can't say, what does this term mean? What, what you know, all right. the things that fill in the details are cut off to you. You have this like finite uh, surface. So is a lot of what you're doing with sources now like background research on things that you're getting from documents? Yeah. I mean, look, I have sources now that say, Jason, you should FOIA this document. Uh, and when you get this document, I'll talk to you. Ah, uh, So um, the existence, the knowledge of where the treasures are buried can be ascertained yes, from sources. Yes. I mean, 
you know, source can point you in a direction of, you know, a memo. There's a memo that was written on this date. I can't discuss it with you, but you should ask for it. So almost nothing that you cover is low stakes. Um, no, I mean, this is this is not frivolous stuff. Like, what what's the incentive for a source either to talk to you about these documents or even just to alert you to their existence? These are all people who I'm guessing I don't know, but I'm yeah. assuming that most of your sources, if they were outed as a Jason Leopold source, not great for their career. No, it wouldn't. <laughs> It'd be great for their career. I, I think that there's this belief, perhaps, that you know, when you talk about like the CIA, the NSA, say even the State Department or, or the Department of Defense, that that everyone there wants things secret, right? I mean, it's just not the case. They don't necessarily want to leak, though, either, right? There is some value to them to have certain things exposed, but to do so in a way that won't get them in trouble. Look, it could be about you know, the fact that lots of money is being, you know, wasted on a certain program. And there is, again, this inherent sort of righteousness that longtime government employees feel about what's going on. I mean, they they literally see and hear everything, right? If they've been around long enough, perhaps it's a contractor, you know, hacking a vending machine. Um, and the way in which that... Uh, people who view child porn, which happens a lot in government agencies, on government computers, you know, are treated. And so there is, they don't have the incentive to just leak, but they do feel compelled to try and get information out there. Chelsea Manning's, Edward Snowden's, uh, Jeffrey Sterling, a former you know, a CIA officer who revealed some details. There are very few people who will provide you with these massive sets of records. That's always shocking to me. I mean, I, you know, I would think in this age that there would be right. there's always a Snowden in every uh, college class. You know, yeah, and it I mean, doesn't really doesn't happen all that much. No, it doesn't. You may get a leak here and there, but I'm talking about a Dumps. document leak. Yeah. I'm not talking about a leak of info. Leaks, as we've seen this sure. year happen selective all the time. leaks yeah. selective the leaks. leaks yeah i'm talking about records hard released. drives yeah. yeah and you know what else ha- is the incentive for you know the people to sort of provide me with this info they see that i'm incredibly aggressive i am going to get that document and guess what i'm going to sue the agency as well i mean i have 41 lawsuits against the federal government some of them have ended but you know, over the past five or six years, I've sued the government 41 times. So some of the people uh, who have provided me with info on what to FOIA, you know, have seen that, have seen, you know, how aggressive I am in terms of trying to pry loose these records. And in some cases, they've wanted these records released because it may prove that perhaps something they blew the whistle on internally, it would back them up. It would back up you know, what they have to say. So there are some instances where they have a self-interest in it, but oftentimes it's related to just some sort of wrongdoing, injustice, something that needs to be exposed. In Citizen Four, the documentary about the Snowden uh, dump that 
one of the things that became really clear was that Snowden viewed what he was doing as a collaboration with journalists mm-hmm. and that without the appropriate journalist on the other end to receive and I and I, I don't want to I know that you and Glenn Greenwald people do different things yeah. but if you're in a situation like how, like how do these people meet each other how do these people within these agencies sure. who want to work you know who want to tell you FOIA this or want right. to talk to you about it how do they find you how do you find them you guys aren't drinking at the same bars no I'm no I mean I will say without giving up my um sources and methods yes. by which I cultivate sources no no proprietary um, information <laughs> yeah you know it's very easy to get to get in touch I mean obviously social media is probably the number one venue or tool by which potential sources and people who ask me to try to FOIA document get in touch I spend a good part of my week always trying to cultivate new sources and you know, particularly on, say, in the FBI, the NSA, the CIA, and anywhere. Um, people don't want to speak right now. They're, in, in fact, they're frankly, they're not allowed to. I mean, journalists have more or less been cut off. It's If you're speaking to a journalist, yeah. you know, you're viewed as doing something wrong. Yeah, it doesn't really matter what you're telling yeah. them. It's that you, you're I'll talking. Get, you know, I'll get an email or we'll get tips. We have a, you know, we have a secure drop, which is uh, a way in which you could send tips securely and anonymously uh, over to BuzzFeed. Sometimes I'll get direct messages on Twitter. Can you chat? Let's chat this way, you know. So um, I also happen to be very vocal, if you will, and transparent myself, fiercely transparent in terms of, you know, trying to share my own set of documents with people. I mean, I don't write about every single thing that I obtain. So I want to bring people into the process. Right. And so if I tweet something, for example, hey, here's what the FBI said about uh, James Comey's memo. Right. The memo that he leaked to a professor that was leaked to The New York Times. Well, the FBI is now saying that that's part of investigation. They can't give it up. So me showing the letter, you know, or, or tweeting out a copy of the letter will sometimes lead other people to maybe in the know to respond and offer their two cents. So a platform like Twitter, all walks of life are on there, you know, yeah. from government. Sometimes, look, we found out that James Comey was lurking on Twitter for, you know, for the longest time. Yeah. So you just never know. Him and Kevin Durant on there right. under, under false names. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, you never know who's out there. So sure. they catch this. They catch wind of this. I have had the hardest time parsing the news in the last three months that I've ever had, particularly in terms of scale. Mm-hmm. Like you have this, uh, I'm going to date this podcast, but Hey, here I am dating this podcast. Uh, you have this, um, Donald Trump Jr. Talking to Julian Assange. Right. To me, just feels like an A1 bombshell. Just like, what the fuck? Julian Assange. Right. Suggesting that he become the Australian ambassador. Yeah. This is just, like really crazy. Right. It's kind of a little like a little mini blip, you know. Right. And then you published a story or yes. you with uh, your colleagues at yep. BuzzFeed published a story about these mysterious uh, Citibank. Is that the right? <laughs> transfers? Citibank uh, wire transfers. Yes. And that's another one where I like I can't tell. Like, is this a 10? Is this a six? Is this like what? What is the magnitude yeah. of this? I mean, it's typically hilarious that the transfers were labeled with finance elections 2016 yes. or something like that. Yeah. So when you're pursuing a story like that, like how does that whole story come about and how do you sort of rank it 
in all of the stuff you're working on, it, like this is the thread I go down. Yeah. There's got to be like a gazillion Russia strands right now. There is. And, you know, one of the things that my colleagues and I have been working on is following the money. Yeah. And the money is the perhaps most important part of looking into Russia, Trump, election. And the reason is, is because we've learned through, again, sourcing, through obtaining some documents, uh, through discussions with banking officials, that the money is, and the data by which the government goes and tracks money, is the easiest. And it's what is most damning in some cases. And what people perhaps forget is that the Treasury Department, other government agencies, they have a, a massive database of all these financial transactions where, you know, they can track what money has been used for, you know, where it goes. And so it immediately led us to think that this is not something that has been tapped. We really need to start looking at it. Um, is that a different skill set, like learning how to get into the money stuff? It seems like it's like it is. It's, it's own it is. FOIA world. That's the part that's kind of difficult about that is that, you know, because money is so personal, right? Yeah. It, it contains personal identifiable information, which is exempt from FOIA. So you you can't uh, get bank records. Rep bank records because that's private information. And does that mean also that the transactions that the FBI and the CIA conduct are like also shielded because they're yeah. contain the bank information right. on one side? Right. If there's anything that has bank information or anything that falls under the you know bank security act where this this law that requires you know banks to report suspicious activities to the treasury department uh or to an office within the treasury department i mean that's that's exempt you can't get that so um but we do know that the agencies like the dea the fbi national counterterrorism center that they all have access to this massive database of financial records and suspicious activity reports based on bank records. And we ended up with some information through aggressive months-long reporting and uh, some pretty damn good sourcing, I will say. And we found out that Citibank, you know, flagged these transactions that they deemed suspicious in the context of the Russia-U.S. election potential interference. They put together some reports they sent it to an office within the Treasury, and then it made its way to the FBI, and the FBI is investigating it. And why are they investigating it? Because there's a, you know, on a memo line it says, to finance election campaign 2016. And these are wire transfers that went all around the world. You know, and in our story, we report that, hey, there was last year when these wire transfers were sent out, it was between August 3rd and September 20th, 2016. You know, there's also the Russian Duma election that was taking place, you know, on September 18th. You know, people have sort of reacted to that, like, hey, this is, you know, Russia would never put something, you know, in a memo line that says to finance election <laughs> campaign 2016. Uh, the fact of the matter is the FBI is investigating it. You know, where, where do we go from here? We continue following it. I mean, I think that one of the luxuries I have working for an investigative unit is that I can follow this, continue following it. Follow it up. What's happening? How's the FBI looking yeah, at it? Yeah, FBI investigates it. You can just FOIA their investigation right. later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so it, in terms of parsing the news, I mean, you're going to be hit with a lot of different stories, you know, many different types of stories. And 
I think that there is certainly a responsibility for us as journalists to try to tell you what to make out of that yeah. story without alarming you. But it's also worthy of follow-up. I certainly don't want to be the one that's saying, here's a story, I'm throwing it out there, and I, there won't be anything else to go along with it ever. And you'll be like, what do I do now? Yeah. You know, what do I do with this information? Which works pretty well with BuzzFeed's publishing cycle, which is kind of just like, here's some more, here's some more, here's some more. It's not like, let's wait and get the A1 of this. It's yeah, like, no, keep, we, it, keep it coming out. Yeah, and look, we, you know, I will say that, that in many ways, it's classic beat reporting. You know, just constantly hammering away at that topic, at that issue, at that subject, until you find out what's going on, until there's perhaps some impact made. I mean, it's an obligation that we have to our readers. Can you give any um, advice or resources for journalists and journalism students uh, listening who want to learn more about FOIA, want to do some FOIAing themselves? Yeah, I think that one of the places on the web, if you will, where you could sort of you know look up some ways in which you can FOIA is uh, investigative reporters and editors. There are some great tip sheets there. I have a tip sheet on there. Okay. The National Security Archive, which is out of uh, George Washington University, has you know some fantastic tips on how to craft a good FOIA request. One of the things that you know I didn't get to hit upon earlier, but what's really crucial in getting records is writing a very good targeted FOIA request. Because what happens is, you know, think about you're you're sending this off, you don't know who's getting it, but the person on the other side who's receiving this is looking at this and saying, I have to interpret this. Right. I, I, what is this person asking for? I don't know what they want. So now I have to interpret it, and it maybe their interpretation could be wrong. Right. And you also didn't tell them where to search. And that person's also looking at a whole pile of foil. Thousands. It's the worst FOIA. They're just going to be like, fuck right. this. Thousands and thousands and thousands of FOIA requests. So it's really crucial that the requester take the time to draft a good FOIA request. And you could find many FOIA requests. I would say that in many instances, some of the most important things that people can do is go onto government websites and look at their FOIA reading rooms. And FOIA reading rooms are where government agencies will post documents that have been released through FOIA. And every government agency has one. And uh, in addition to that, if people are really interested in learning how to file some good FOIA requests, you know, go onto another website called FOIA Online, where literally not just the documents are posted, but the requests are posted too. But, you know, reach out to me. You know, I'm, I make myself- He's on Twitter. Slide yes, into his DMs. Know. Yeah, I mean, I, my, my DMs are open. I. I really believe that it's useful to help people out. I'm a huge proponent of trying to assist colleagues, you know, up and coming journalists, students with using this tool. It's an incredibly valuable tool. We're lucky that we get the opportunity as journalists to actually, you know, get the fees waived and provide the public with this type of transparency. Well, thank you very much, Jason Leopold. Thank you, Aaron.
And that's the show. Uh, thank you very much to Jason Leopold for coming in quite early in the morning. I'd like to say that I think this sets the record for the earliest taping, at least in my tenure here. If someone has taped an episode uh, at 9 a.m. before, uh, you can uh, disclose that later. This episode was edited by Janelle Pfeiffer. Uh, our intern is Angela Velez. Thanks very much to my co-host, Max Linsky, and of course, the activist, Evan Ratliff. Thank you very much to our sponsors, Credible, Skillshare, Mubi, that's M-U-B-I. I was just, hey, I just fired up Mubi in my Apple TV last night and watched the movie. Why aren't you doing that? And of course, of course, of course, MailChimp. Thank you, MailChimp. We will see you next week. Wait, actually, uh, before we go, I'm going to tell you quickly about our sponsors. One more time. The first is Mubi, and uh, Mubi is a streaming service. It's an online cinema experience with exceptional films from around the globe. There's just 30, so it's not like that thing where you open it up and uh, you're just overwhelmed by choice. Every movie is fantastic, picked by a human. Go check it out. You can try it for free for 30 days at Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash longform. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Thanks also to Credible.com, the online marketplace for student loan refinancing. Using Credible's simple platform, it takes less than two minutes to find out if you're overpaying on your student loans. For a limited time, listeners will get a $200 welcome bonus when refinancing through Credible.com slash longform. That's Credible.com slash longform. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. And the show will be back next week, like always. See you then. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.